So let's talk about sex in sparky and sustainable relationships. I'm Eric Thompson, and this is To Honor and Cherish. Welcome. Well, what's the first thing you say about a podcast about sex? Sex is private. I think there's a lot of value in sex being private, especially in marriages. I think it's a sacred gift. Its importance can be overstated, especially here in America. American society seems confused about sex to me. It's both oversold and kind of undersold. Maybe what's oversold is too much attention on it. Maybe what's undersold is wisdom about it. So here's the thing I really want to say about this. I heard years ago from one of my wise mentors the following statement, that the big deal in marriages when it comes to all the kinds of things people can get to differing about, how to raise the kids, how to spend the money, and sex, is not so much the details. So for sex, it's not so much the common challenges of how much should we have or preferences of the type of sex. It's not these things, said my wise mentor. It's who gets to decide. And boy, did that stick with me. So I think that a lot in a lot of longer-term marriages, this sensitivity or tension about who gets to decide has ups and downs. And in some marriages, it can rise up and become a prolonged power struggle. And sex is one of the places where this can happen. So I would say part of the art of having a sparky and sustainable sex experience in a marriage, in a great marriage, is the art of not making a big deal out of it. How good are you at not getting what you want? This is a great place to get better at it for many people in long-term marriages. I'm not saying that you should embrace the idea of somehow never getting satisfaction, but I'm saying that people often make too big a deal out of something small. I'll give you an example. When my wife and I had our first two kids, they came 18 months apart. We had always kind of had a pretty easy, affectionate, physical relationship. But the rhythm of that obviously changed with the exhaustion of having two babies. And I remember the rhythm changed significantly and I started feeling frustrated. And I was thinking about what I wanted to do about it. 
and I'm very grateful for the wisdom tradition that surrounded me, which is Bowen Family Systems Theory, and for my relationships with people here at the Vermont Center for Family Studies, for providing me with the context, the viewpoint, that a lot of times it's how you react to things in life that determines how they go, not so much what's happening. And so I made a decision, remembering that quote, it's not so much how much, it's who gets to decide. I made, I made a decision, you know what, Eric? I am not going to make a big deal out of who gets to decide right now. I'm gonna spend a year with she gets to decide. And it felt so good, I knew it was gonna work. <laughs> I felt very centered when I found this position inside myself. I never told her about it. I just tested myself to see, can I pull this off? So that's an example of the art of not making a big deal out of it. In order to do that, you've got to be pretty good at tolerating frustration. I think marriage is a great place to get better at tolerating frustration masterfully. And the magic in it is, if you get better at doing that, if you're pretty good about it in the first place, you tend to get more of what you want. That's the magic paradox of sex in a long-term marriage. If you're pretty good at managing frustration, you get it more. So I want to say uh, something about this, that there's, there's, I think there's two fundamental types of challenges in this space of tolerating frustration. And the first one is when you are the pursuer and you're not getting the kind you want or the amount you want, but you're in that position of the one who wants something else. The other one is when you're the pursued, when you have somebody you love who's signaling to you that they, they're in that frustrated place. Both of these positions is a good workout. Both of these positions are challenging. Let's talk about the pursuer one. So I just told you a story about that. Anxious pursuers anxious pressures. A lot of times, in my experience as a couples therapist, it's the guy, but certainly not always. For anxious pursuers, avoid being an anxious pressurer. You are poisoning the well. Learn to be way more gracious. Learn to be more patient. Learn to be generous. Sounds so simple, not easy to do. You know, in my case, she's dealing with two babies. She's tired. This doesn't have to be personal. This doesn't have to be about me. 
let's let's play the long game here. Let's play the 10 year game. Let's leave her feeling at the end of a month generously towards me. It's so easy to weaken that feeling in the other person, in your partner, with pressured, anxious pursuit. And it's a good time maybe to uh, to, to, to touch on something pretty profound, which is that ultimately, my mood doesn't have to be dependent on what I'm getting or not getting. It doesn't have to be dependent on me having the right car or the right house or exactly, you know, the thing I wanted to have happen this month. Um, my kids acting just the way I wanted to th have them act this month or somebody handling my birthday the right way. We can get caught in the outside and lose contact with the sense of fulfillment of just being alive. And maybe these frustrating moments in a marriage are opportunities to get more grounded in something more profound, the joy of just being alive. And if we do that, we're more likely to see the glass more than half full with our spouses. You know, in my case, incredibly proud about how she was handling the journey of becoming a mom to a whole bunch of babies at once, for example. And all the ways in which she was supporting me during those years. It's sad for me when I see couples forget all that half full stuff and make a big deal out of something transitory. So what about this other side of the coin, this anxiously pursued? What about people who feel pressured by their partner? Anxiously pressured. Again, I would say more than 50% of the time in long-term heterosexual marriages, which is what I know about, they tend to be the gals, but definitely not always. I've seen the exceptions. For the anxiously pursued regarding sex, it's another kind of mastery. I think it has to do with mastering the art of frustrating somebody. Mastering the art of frustrating. This doesn't sound like great advice for a marriage, but think about it. I think it is. How able are you to tolerate the anxious pursuer's frustration? For the anxious pursuer, he could learn to tolerate his own frustration better. For the anxiously pursued, she could learn to better tolerate 
his frustration without making a big deal out of it. In other words, maybe without fearing it so much. Being a little bit less afraid of him in a frustrated mood. How to not turn moods into themes is what I'm talking about here today. Themes being things that people start to see as defining our relationship. So, you know, it could look like uh, my friend uh, from a long time ago, friend and colleague, let's say his name was Phil. And he was telling me that he had a great relationship with his wife and he was very happy with their marriage and he was very happy with their sex life. And we were talking about this theme one day and he said, you know, my wife is amazing. If I start pursuing her and she's not in the mood, she'll just look at me and she'll go, you're not getting anything tonight, big boy. <laughs> and he laughed. I think he liked how calm she was about it. You know, if you're not so good at tolerating the frustration of the anxious, pressuring pursuer, you're probably going to cave to it too often. You might get into a pattern of fearing his pursuit because you don't know how to handle it. You might get into a pattern of giving into the pursuit too often and sort of pretending that you're not too tired to enjoy it. These things are not good for the long-term sparky and sustainable prospects, especially when they add up. You know, I'm all for people not always going with their own preferences. I think the anxious pursuers should learn to not go with their preferences on a regular basis and the same with the anxiously pursued. I think once in a while going with the preferences of the pursuer, not a bad thing, but when it becomes a pattern, when it's grounded in fear or worry or anxiety so that you have an anxiously pursued person being pursued by an anxious pressurer, that combo, one plus one, equals tension rising. And emotional space decreasing. Now they start to feel crowded. I want to give a shout out here to the famous writer and psychologist Esther Perel, who wrote a great book called Mating in Captivity. If you're interested in what I'm talking about, it's a fantastic book. Esther has a great podcast series. Mating in Captivity, if you haven't read it, refers to something very interesting that's relevant to what I'm talking about. It refers to the fact that zoos have a problem, especially with their larger mammals, that they will become completely disinterested in sex when you cage them. So, you know, for example, in the D.C. Zoo, the pandas, it's a challenge to get them to mate. The lions, it's a challenge. They have these lions. They're living in the D.C. Zoo for life. They can lose all interest in sex 
What does that tell us about humans? Well, humans aren't living in cages, but the marriage can become a cage. Don't let your marriage become a cage. Keep the doors open. Keep the air flowing in. Keep the fresh air coming in. Keep the surprises coming. Don't cage her. And if you're the anxiously pursued, don't let yourself get caged. If you get caged, my proposition is that's 50% on you. Let's go up a notch. It's 51% on you. I like the idea that whatever happens in my marriage is at least 51% my responsibility. Whatever I'm feeling in my marriage, if I'm feeling pressured, it's 51% my responsibility. In other words, I'm doing a lot of things that contribute to me feeling pressured or cornered. Same with the other side. If I'm feeling um, frustrated, dissatisfied, get good at understanding the 51% that's on your side. What, what unfortunately happens is people become in a tension, in a marriage that's where the tension's rising and the sparky and sustainable is weakening, people become masters of what the other one is doing to stimulate the problem. And sometimes they get into a pattern where they start throwing these interpretations at each other. And each one is a master of what the other one does. People talk about like listening and communication skills as really helpful in times like these. But I don't know, I'm, I'm skeptical of that, like a lot of other good marital researchers are. Like Neil Jacobson at the University of Washington, who presents the idea that in a marriage that's in trouble, communicating emotions is probably one of the worst things they could be doing. Now, on the other hand, if somebody in a couple like that gets better at listening in a calm way, in a curious way, in a way that represents a shift in thinking, a shift towards trying to better understand my 51% of the problem, that's a different situation. That could be very helpful. So, you know, back to the anxiously pursued, again, mastering the art of frustrating somebody. It can be done with so much graciousness. And, you know, interview your friends about it. How do you do that? There are people who are really good at this, who are out there, who are good at staying calm about it, not making it worse, and maybe uh, gently training the other person to to. To, to get get you know get through the week or get through the day. It's kind of a loving no. And some people say, I think this is true, without the ability to have a loving no in the marital bedroom, it's going to be hard to get to the loving yes. They go together. So if the anxious pursuer, you kind of need to celebrate the loving no. If you get better at celebrating the loving no, 
you're on your way to the loving yes. And I'm sure there's tons of nuances to the art of having a sparky and sustainable sexual relationship and a long-term partnership that I'm not covering. But I think those are, are two pretty solid ones worth thinking about. In the space where anxious pursuit and fearfully pursued are not dominant, there's room for something pretty special, something private, a sacred gift, something playful. You remember what it was like when you played with your best friend when you were a kid? Anyone's allowed to go home anytime. And laughter is easy to come by. And you remember that kid who you didn't want to play with? Well, what were they like? He had to get his way. You know, if you felt like you wanted to start pretending to be King Arthur and running around with a stick, but he thought you should be playing cow cowboys and Indians, he would make a big deal out of it. He would tell you, you need to keep being the Indian. He wanted to control the game too much. So here at the Vermont Center for Family Studies, we want to share with people the wisdom of Bowen Family Systems Theory in ways that are easy to take in. All of what I'm talking to now, what I'm talking about, I think uh, spells out the picture of what a differentiated marriage looks like. And I want to say we're very grateful to the sponsors of this podcast. The Pomerleau Real Estate Company has been supporting us for years and the Brew family who believe in what we're doing and stand behind us. Folks, enjoy the ride, enjoy being together, and good luck. <laughs>